The Story Girl, Chapter Twenty Eight: The Tale of Rainbow Bridge. Felix, so far as my remembrance goes, never attained to success in the ordeal of bitter apples. He gave up trying after a while, and he also gave up praying about it, saying in bitterness of spirit that there was no use in praying when other fellows prayed against you out of spite. He and Peter remained on bad terms for some time, however. We were all of us too tired those nights to do any special praying. Sometimes I fear our regular praying were slurred over or murmured, in anything but reverent haste. October was a busy month on the hill farms. The apples had to be picked, and this work fell mainly to the children. We stayed home from school to do it. It was pleasant work, and there was a great deal of fun in it. But it was hard too. And our arms and backs ached roundly at night. In the morning it was delightful, in the afternoons tolerable, but in the evenings we lagged, and the laughter and zest of fresher hours were lacking. Some of the apples had to be picked very carefully, but with others it did not matter. We boys would climb the trees and shake the apples down until the girls shrieked for mercy. The days were crisp and mellow, with warm sunshine and a tang of frost in the air, mingled with woodsy odors of the withering grasses. The hens and turkeys prowled about, pecking at windfalls, and Pat made mad rushes at them amid the fallen leaves. The world beyond the orchard was in a royal magnificent magnificence of coloring under the vivid blue autumn sky. The big willows by the gate was a splendid golden dome, and the maples that were scattered through the spruce grove waved blood-red banners over the somber cone bearers. The story girl generally had her head garlanded with their leaves; they became her vastly. Neither Felicity nor Cecily could have worn them. Those two girls were of a domestic type that assorted ill with the wild. Fire in the nature's veins, but when the story girl wreathed her nut-brown tresses with crimson leaves, it seemed, as Peter said, that they grew out of her, as if the gold and flame of her spirit had broken out in coronial, as much a part of her as the pale halo seems to be a part of the Madonna it encircles. What tales she told us on those far-away autumn days! Peopling the russet arcade with folk of an elder world, many a princess rode by us on her horse. Many a swaggering gallant ruffled it bravely in velvet and plume downed Uncle Stephen's walk. Many a stately lady, silken clad, walked in that opulent orchard. When we had filled our baskets, they had to be carried to the granary loft, and the contents stored in bins or spread out on floors to ripen further. We ate a good many, of course, feeling that the laborer was worthy of his hire. The apples from our own birthday trees were stored in separate barrels, inscribed with our names. We might dispose of them as we willed. Felicity sold hers to Uncle Alec's hired man and was badly cheated to boot, for he levanted shortly afterwards, taking the apples with him, having paid her only half her rightful due. Felicity has not gotten over that to this day. 
Cecily, dear heart, sent most of hers to the hospital in town, and no doubt gathered in therefrom dividends of gratitude and satisfaction of souls, such as can never be purchased by any mere process of bargaining and sales. The rest of us ate our apples or carried them to school, where we bartered them for such treasures as our schoolmates possessed and were coveted. There was a dusky little pear-shaped apple from one of Uncle Stephen's trees, which was our favorite, and next to it a delicious juicy yellow apple from Aunt Louisa's tree. We were all so fond of the big sweet apples we used to throw them up in the air and let them fall on the ground until they were bruised and battered to the bruising point, to the bursting point. Then we sucked the juice sweeter than the nectar drank by blissful gods on the Thessalonian hill. Sometimes we worked until the cold yellow sunsets faded out over the darkening distance, and the hunter's moon looked down on us through the sparkling air. The constellations of autumn scintillated above us. Peter and the story girl knew all about them, and imparted their knowledge to us generously. I recall Peter standing on the pulpit stone one night, ere moonrise, and pointing them out to us, occasionally having a difference of opinion with the story girl over the name of some particular star. Job's coffin and the northern cross were to the west of us. South of us flamed Fomulhurt. The great square of Pegasus was over our heads. Cassiopeia sat enthroned in her beautiful chair in the northeast, and the north of us is dippers swung in untiringly round the pole star. Cecily and Felix were the only ones who could distinguish the double star in the handle of the big dipper, and greatly did they plume themselves thereon. The story girl told us the myths and legends woven from these immoral clusters, her very voice taking on the clear, remote, starry sounds as she talked of them. When she ceased, we came back to earth, feeling as if we had been millions of miles away in the blue ether, and that all our old familiar surroundings were momentarily forgotten and strange. That night, when we pointed out the stars from the pulpit star, was the last time for several weeks that Peter shared our toil and pastime. The next day he complained of headache and sore throat, and seemed to prefer laying on Aunt Olivia's kitchen sofa to doing any work, as it was not in Peter to be malingerer, he was left in peace, while we picked apples. Felix alone, most unjustly and spitefully, declared that Peter was simply shirking his work. He's just lazy. That's what the matter with him is, he said. Why don't you talk sense? If you must talk, said Felicity, there's no sense in calling Peter lazy. You might as well say I had black hair. Of course, Peter, being a Craig, has his faults. But he is a smart boy. His father was lazy, but his mother hasn't a lazy bone in her body, and Peter takes after her. Uncle Roger says Peter's father wasn't exactly lazy, said the story girl. The trouble was there were so many other things he liked better than work. I wonder if he'll ever come back to his family, said Cecily, 
Just think how dreadful it would be if our father had left us like that. Our father is a king, said Felicity loftily, and Peter's father was only a Craig. A member of our family couldn't behave like that. They say there must be a black sheep in every family, said the story girl. There isn't in ours, said Cecily loftily. Why do white sheep eat more than black? asked Felix. Is that a conundrum? asked Cecily cautiously. If it is, I won't try to guess the reason. I never can guess conundrums. It isn't a conundrum, said Felix. It's a fact. They do. And there's a good reason for it. We stopped picking apples, sat down on the grass, and tried to reason it out. With the exception of Dan, who declared that he knew there was such a catch somewhere and he wasn't going to be caught, the rest of us could not see where any catch could exist, since Felix solemnly vowed, cross his heart, white sheep did eat more than black. We argued over it seriously, but finally had to give up. Well, what's the reason? said Felicity. Because there's more of them, said Felix, grinning. I forgot what we did to Felix. Chapter 29 The Shadow of Feared of Men We were all up early the next morning, dressing by candlelight, but early as it was, we found the story girl in the kitchen when we went down sitting on Rachel Ward's blue chest and looking important. What do you think? she exclaimed. Peter has the measles. He was dreadfully sick all night, and Uncle Roger had to go for the doctor. He was quite light-headed and didn't know any and didn't know anyone. Of course, he's far too sick to be taken home. So his mother has come up to wait on him, and I'm to live over here until he is better. There was a mingled bitter and sweet. We were sorry to hear that Peter had the measles. But it would be jolly to have the story girl living with us all the time. What orgies of storytelling we would have! I suppose we'll all have the measles now, grumbled Felicity, and October is such an inconvenient time for measles. There's so much to do. I don't believe any time is very inconvenient to have the measles, said Cecily. Oh, perhaps we won't have them, said the story girl cheerfully. Peter caught them at Markdale. Last time he was home, his mother says. I don't want to catch the measles from Peter, said Felicity decidedly. Fancy catching them from a hired boy. Oh, Felicity, don't call Peter a hired boy when he's sick, protested Cecily. During the next two days, we were very busy, too busy to tell tales or listen to them. Only in the frosty dusk did we have time to wander afar in realms of gods with the story girl. She had recently been digging into a couple of old volumes of classic myths and Northland folklore, which she had found at Aunt Olivia's attic, and for us, gods and goddesses, laughing myths and mocking stirs, worn and valkyrie, elves and trolls, and green folk generally were real creatures once again inhabiting the orchards and woods and meadows round us until it seemed as if the golden age had returned to earth. Then, on the third day, the story girl came up over with a very white face. She had been over to Uncle Roger's yard to hear the latest bulletin from the sick room. 
Hitherto they had been of a non-committal nature, but now it was only too evident that she had bad news. Peter is very, very sick, she said miserably. He has caught cold some way, and the measles have struck in and... and... The story girl wrung her brown hands together. The doctor is afraid he... he won't get better. We all stood around, stricken. What do you mean? asked Felix, finding voice at length. Do you mean Peter's going to die? The story girl nodded miserably. They're afraid so. Cecily sat down by her half-filled basket and began to cry. Felicity said violently that she didn't believe it. I can't pick another apple today, and I ain't going to try, said Dan. None of us could. We went to the grown-ups and told them so, and the grown-ups with unaccustomed understanding and sympathy told us that we need not. Then we roamed about in our wretchedness and tried to comfort one another. We avoided the orchard. It was for us too full of happy memories to accord with our bitterness of soul. Instead, we returned to the spruce wood, where the brush and somber shadows and the soft melancholy sighings of the wind in the branches over us did not jar harshly on our new sorrow. We could not really believe that Peter was going to die. To die! Old people died. Grown-up people died. Even children of whom we had heard died. But that was not one of us, of our merry little band. Should die was unbelievable. We could not believe it. And yet the possibility struck us in the face like a blow. We sat on the mossy stones under the dark old evergreens and gave ourselves up to wretchedness. We all, even Dan, cried except the story girl. I don't see how you can be so unfeeling, Sarah Stanley, said Felicity reproachfully. You've always been such friends with Peter and made out you thought so much of him, and now you ain't shedding a tear for him. I, looking at the story girl's dry, piteous eyes, and suddenly remembered that I had never seen her cry. When she told us sad tales in a voice laden with all the tears that had ever been shed, she had never shed one her, of her own. I can't cry, she said drearily. I wish I could. I've a dreadful feeling here, she touched her slender throat, and if I could cry, I think it would make it better, but I can't. Maybe Peter will get better after all, said Dan, swallowing a sob. I've heard of lots of people who went and got better after the doctor said they oughtn't to die. Well, there's life, there's hope, you know, said Felix. We shouldn't cross bridges till we come to them. There are only proverbs, said the story girl bitterly. Proverbs are all very fine when there's nothing to worry you. But when you're in real trouble, they're not a bit of help. Oh, I wish I'd never said Peter wasn't fit to associate with us, moaned Felicity. If he ever gets better... I'll never say such a thing again. I never will. He's just a lovely boy and twice as smart as a lot that aren't hired out. He was always so polite and good-natured and obliging, sighed Cecily. He was just a real gentleman, the story girl said. 
There ain't many fellows as fur and as fair and square as Peter said Dan, and such a worker said Felix. Uncle Roger says he never had a boy who could depend on like Peter. It's too late to be saying all these nice things about him now, said the story girl. He won't ever know how much we thought of him. It's too late. I suppose if Peter dies, he'll go to heaven anyhow, sobbed Cecily. He's been real good all his this summer, but he isn't a church member. He's a Presbyterian, you know, said Felicity, reassuringly. Her tone expressed her conviction that would carry Peter through, if anything would. We're none of us church members, but of course Peter could be sent to the bad place. That would be ridiculous. What would they do with him there, when he's so good and polite and honest and kind? Oh, I think he'll be all right, too, sighed Cecily. But you know he never did go to church and Sunday school before this summer. Well, his father ran away, and his mother was too busy earning a living to bring him up right, argued Felicity. Don't you suppose that anybody, even God, would make an allowance for that? Of course, Peter will go to heaven, said the story girl. He's not grown up enough to go anywhere else. Children always go to heaven, but I don't want him to go there or anywhere else. I want him to stay right here. I know heaven must be a splendid place, but I'm sure Peter would rather be here having fun with us. Sarah Stanley rebuked Felicity. I should think you wouldn't say such things at such a solemn time. You're such an odd girl. Wouldn't you rather be here yourself than in heaven? asked the story girl bluntly. Wouldn't you know, Felicity King? Tell the truth. Cross your heart. But Felicity took refuge from this inconvenient question in tears. If we could only do something to help Peter, I said desperately. It seems dreadful not to be able to do a single thing. There's one thing we can do, said Cecily gently. We can pray for him. So we can, I agreed. I'm going to pray like sixty, said Felix energetically. We'll have to be awfully good, you know, warned Cecily. There's no use in praying if you're not good. That will be easy, sighed Felicity. I don't feel a bit like being bad. If anything happens to Peter, I feel sure I will never be naughty again. I won't have the heart. We did indeed pray most sincerely for Peter's recovery. We did not, as in the case of Patty, tack it on after more important things, but put it in the very front of our petitions. Even skeptical Dan prayed, his skeptical falling away from him, his skepticism falling away from him like a discarded garment in the valley of the shadow, which shifts out hearts and tries souls until we all, grown up or children, realize our weakness and finding that our own puny strength is as a reed shaken in the wind, creep back humbly to the God we have vainly deemed we could do without. Peter was no better the next day, Aunt Olivia reported that his mother was broken-hearted. We did not again ask to be released from work. Instead, we went in with feverish zeal. If we worked hard, there was less time for grief and grievous thoughts. We picked apples and dragged them to the granary doggedly. In the afternoon, Aunt Janet 
brought us our lunch to the apple of apple turnovers, but we could not eat them. Peter, as Felicity reminded us, with a burst of tears, had been so fond of apple turnovers. And oh, how good we were! How angelically and unnaturally good! Never was there such a band of kind, sweet-tempered, unselfish children in an orchard. Even Felicity and Dan for once in their lives, got through the day without any exchange of left-handed compliments. Cecily confided to me that she never meant to put her hair up in curlers on Saturday night again, because it was pretending. She was so anxious to repent of something, sweet girl, and this was all she could think of. During the afternoon, Judy Penwell brought up a tear-blotted note from sarah ray sarah had not been allowed to visit the hill farm since peter had developed measles she was an unhappy little exile and could only relieve her anguish of soul by daily letters to cecily which the faithful and obliging judy pinu brought up to her these epistles were as gushingly underlined as if sarah had been corresponding in early victorian days Cecily did not write back, because Mrs. Ray had declared that no letter must be taken down from the hill farm, lest they carry infection. Cecily had offered to bake every epistle through thoroughly in the oven before sending it, but Mrs. Ray was inexorable, and Cecily had to content herself with sending long verbal messages with Judy Penu. Our own dearest Cecily, ran Sarah's letter, I have just heard that sad news about poor dear Peter. I can't describe my feelings. They are dreadful. I have been crying all the afternoon. I wish I could fly to you, but Ma will not let me. She is afraid I will catch the measles, but I would rather have the measles a dozen times over than to be separated from you all like this. But I have felt, ever since the judgment Sunday, that I must obey Ma better than I used to do. If anything happens to Peter, and you are let see him before it happens, give him my love, and tell him how sorry I am, that I hope he will meet in a better world. Everything in school is about the same. The master is awful cross by spells. Jimmy Fruin walked home with Nellie Cowan, last night from prayer meeting and her only f and she's only fourteen don't you think it's horrid beginning so young you and me would never do anything like that till we were grown up would we willie fraser looks so lonesome in school these days i must stop for ma says i waste far too much time writing letters tell judy all the news for me your own true friend sarah ray P.S. Oh, I do hope Peter will get better. Ma is going to get me a new brown dress for the winter. S.R. When evening came, we went to our seats under the whispering, sighing fir trees. It was a beautiful night, clear, windless, frosty. Someone galloped down the road on horseback, lustily singing a comic song. How dare he! We felt that it, this was an insult to our wretchedness. How could anyone in the world be happy when we were so unhappy? 
Presently, Aunt Olivia came down the long twilight arcade. Her bright hair was uncovered, and she looked slim and queen-like in her light dress. We thought Aunt Olivia very pretty even then. Looking back from a mature standpoint, I realized that she must have been unusually beautiful woman, and she looked her prettiest as she stood under the swaying boughs in the last faint light of autumn dusk and smiled down at our woe-begotten faces. "'Dear, sorrowful little people, I bring you glad tidings of great joy,' she said. "'The doctor has just been here, and he finds Peter much better, and thinks he will pull through all right.' We gazed up at her in silence for a few moments. When we had heard the news of Patty's recovery, we had been noisy and jubilant, but we were very quiet now. We had been too near something dark and terrible and menacing.' and thought it was thus suddenly removed. The chill and the shadow of it were about us still, and presently the story girl, who had been standing up, leaning against a tall fir, slipped down to the ground in a huddled fashion and broke into a very passion of weeping. I had never heard anyone cry so, with such dreadful rendering sobs. I was used to hearing girls cry. It was as much Sarah Ray's normal state as any other. Even Felicity and Cecily availed themselves occasionally of the privilege of being female. But I had never heard any girl cry like that. It gave them the same unpleasant sensation which I had felt one time when I had seen my father cry. Oh, don't cry, Sarah, don't, I said gently, patting her convulsive shoulders. You are an odd girl, said Felicity, more tolerantly than usual, however. You never cried a speck when we thought Peter was going to die, and now, when he is going to get better, you cry like that. Sarah, child, come with me, said Aunt Olivia, bending over her. The story girl got up and went away with Aunt Olivia's arms round her. The sound of her crying died away under the firs, and with it seemed to go the dread and grief that had been our portion for hours. In the reaction, our spirits rose with a bound. Oh, ain't it great that Peter's going to be all right, said Dan, springing up. I never was so glad of anything in my whole life, declared Felicity in shameless rapture. Can't we send word somehow to Sarah tonight? asked Cecily. The ever thoughtful. She's feeling so bad, and she'll have to feel that way till tomorrow if we can't. Let's all go down to the Ray Gate and holler to Judy Pinu till she comes out, suggested Felix. Accordingly, we went and hollered, with a right good will. We were much taken aback to find that Mrs. Ray came to the gate instead of Judy, and rather sourly demanded what we were yelling about. When she heard our news, however, she had the decency to say she was glad, and to promise she would convey the glad tidings to Sarah, who was already in bed where all good children of your age should be, added Mrs. Ray severely. We had no intention of going to bed for a good two hours yet. Instead, after devoutly thinking goodness, that our grown-ups, in spite of some imperfections, were not of Mrs. Ray's type, we betook ourselves to the granary, lighted a large lantern, which Dan had made of turnips, and proceeded to the devour all the apples we might have eaten through the day, but had not. 
We were a blithe little crew, sitting there in the light of our goblin lantern. We had, in very truth, been given beauty for ashes and oil of joy for mourning. Life was as red rose once more. I'm going to make a big batch of patty pans first thing in the morning, said Felicity jubilantly. Isn't it odd? Last night I felt just like praying. Tonight I feel just like cooking. We mustn't forget to thank God for making Peter better, said Cecily, as we finally went to the house. Do you suppose Peter wouldn't have got better anyway? said Dan. Oh, Dan, what makes you ask such questions? exclaimed Cecily in real distress. I don't know, said Dan. They just kind of come into my head, like. But of course, I mean to thank God when I say my prayers tonight. That's only decent.